You're listening to a Radio 1 91FM podcast. Throughout history, civil disobedience has been employed as a protest tactic. Recently, activists have engaged in a month of climate protests ranging in extremity from roadblocks to most notably stop oil members throwing canned soup and gluing themselves to the wall of the National Gallery in London. I spoke with Dr. David Jenkins, political theory lecturer at the University of Otago, about the significance of civil disobedience tactics, considering the reasoning and response to these tactics, and really, what makes a good protest. I started by asking when civil disobedience tactics are justified, and under what circumstances is it okay to break the law as a form of protest? So I guess, I mean, there's a, there's a number of schools of thought on this. Um, and so some would say that it's only in illiberal regimes where there's kind of no rights of formal participation, right? So you're kind of shut out of the political system. And so as a result, you have to um, take kind of extreme measures, actions that are perceived as extreme, going against the law in order to make yourself heard. And then the argument there would be as soon as you've um, got these rights to liberal kind of participation participation within these liberal democratic regimes, then you have to um, kind of submit to the to formal procedures in a in a in a democracy. And then there's a kind of I guess there's a kind of middle ground, which would be you know in those situations. So John Rawls, who was kind of uh, an important I guess uh, not a starting point, but kind of theorized in the 70s about civil disobedience. He made this idea. He made this point that within situations of kind of near justice where the, you know, kind of liberal democratic regimes, they're flawed, um, but they they kind of approximate justice in some, sen- in some sense. Then you can have civil disobedience in particular instances when, you know, you're, tr- you're trying to move those regimes closer to, um, to being more just. And so, for instance, um, there might be an argument that, uh, I mean, I wouldn't make this argument, and we can talk about that shortly, but the civil rights movement, right? It was in a situation in the American um, liberal capitalist democracy where there's uh, an attempt to be broadly, to, to achieve a kind of broad fidelity to the law in a general sense. And so you have to break particular laws in order to bring that society um, closer to justice. So in those situations, then it's um, it's about kind of nudging a society forward, right? And that's when you can break the law is when um, formal procedures aren't really working. But I, I don't take that view. I, I think the, the idea that the civil rights movement was kind of um, invested in America as a quote-unquote nearly just society is, is absurd. And the idea that Henry David Thoreau and Gandhi would also be considered as kind of broadly faithful to their legal systems, I think, is to, to have an idealized vision of history. You know, Martin Luther King described America at least towards the end of his life, is evil. And I think, um, I think that comes closer to describing American democracy at that time and even, even today. So I, uh, and so I guess my, my own point of view would be that civil disobedience is, is acceptable wherever you think the stakes are high enough and the formal procedures are um, flawed enough such that you, you have to take that kind of action where uh, breaking the law is, is what you perceive as the, the best possible course of action. And there's no real, you know, there's various... Um, Things you need to take into account, such as you know whether your um, activity is going to make things worse, um, whether it's it's going to achieve its ends in, in as kind of in as uh, kind of cost effective a way as possible. But generally speaking, I don't think there's any reason to think that the regimes we live in today are uh, of such a quality that they um, they argue against civil disobedience as a legitimate tactic.
the legitimacy of these tactics? Um, when when are they effective, and what makes a good protest versus an effective one? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess good and effective, it depends kind of on the metrics that you use. But let's, um, I guess it depends on the ends you're you're trying to achieve and what you think your activity is going to do to move your your cause forward. So, for instance, the, you know, XR talk about the way in which um, breaking the law and then essentially um, accepting your punishment. So, you know, take being taken to court and being prosecuted is they talk about it being a kind of signal. Uh, and so it's a signal to the wider public that you're very serious, that you take these um, the particular cause that you're pursuing very seriously and that you're willing to kind of put yourself on the line, throw yourself on the gears. And so it's this signal that's trying to be, that's being communicated to the public, right? So that would be one way of doing it. You kind of, it's called deliberative inertia. So there's something, there's something that's not happening. There's something that's not being discussed um, with the, the seriousness that it needs to be discussed. And so these illegal actions, whether they be spectacles, which we might think of as a kind of uncivil disobedience, or whether they're blocking roads, whatever that might be, there's this kind of communicative dimension where they're trying to um, inspire a certain kind of reflectivity in in the general public. But the other the other way of thinking about deliberative um, about civil disobedience is that it's a way of disrupting or business as usual. It's a way of refusing acquiescence to the status quo, and um, instead you you essentially try to disrupt things as much as possible. So a strike, for instance, isn't civil disobedience. It's entirely legal, but your attempt there is to shut things down. Um, that's what you're trying to do. So when you're, for another one, um, mass arrests, rather than having any communicative function, what you're trying to do is overload the courts so that it creates a crisis for the powers of the be, and then it, it brings them to the table, right? So on the one hand, you're trying to communicate to the public, and on the other hand, you're trying to create crises which those in power have to deal with. And these are the two, um, I think, dimensions that need to be kind of disaggregated when we think about how civil disobedience works. Because in some situations, it might be an issue of communication. It might be an issue of deliberative inertia. But in other situations, that might not be what we're dealing with. What we're dealing with instead is having to shut things down and create crises. And that's the, that's the way of thinking about what civil disobedience and other forms of lawbreaking are trying to achieve. Right, so that can be disruptive. And as seen with discourse to the Stop Oil protests um, where there was soup thrown at artwork, there's a lot of backlash to things like that. Does that hurt the justification for these sorts of actions? Good, yeah. So I would, yeah, so to refer back to that, that, that second answer I just gave you there. So it depends on what your approach is, right? Are you trying to communicate something or are you trying to disrupt something? And I think... First of all, I want to say that I have um, sympathy for the individuals involved in these kind of actions because I think they're asking the question, you know, what is to be done? And there are just no easy answers. And so this is, I think it's a, it's a, it's an act of desperation. But I do think that there's a certain um, naivete, I think, to some of these actions because, on the one hand, right, they're trying to communicate something, but they ha- they have to understand that when they take these actions, they throw soup at these various masterpieces, which, you know, they are protected by glass. So these aren't destroying these masterpieces. What they're doing is, you know, creating a spectacle. So that's going to then, you know, the idea is is they're going to be able to use these spectacles to communicate something to the wider audience, to the public, which will kind of drive them out of their collective um, stupor. But I think that's not taking seriously just how corrupted our public sphere is these days, how public, the, how corrupted the conversation is surrounding these kinds of 
both the kind of crises that they're trying to um, confront and also the kind of tactics that they're trying to use. So the, the communicative function, I think, has to be regarded as kind of secondary at this point. And instead, they need to think about, you know, how much is this going to disrupt? How much is this creating a crisis for the powers that be, for the individuals and institutions who need to be halted in enacting certain legislation or in um, whatever it might be, um, pushing for fracking or for pushing for more you know, exploration for oil and gas, whatever it might be. How is throwing super a painting going to disrupt these processes? And the answer is it's not going to disrupt anything. And so both in the commun communicative side and in terms of the disruptive side, I think these actions, they stem from a kind of desperation, totally understandable desperation, but they don't strike me as um, especially, especially productive. And I think it's going to lead to a lot of people um, regarding them as, uh, as unserious and um, also a lot of burnout with the members of those groups as well, which is always uh, a worry with this kind, of, um, this kind of movement politics, is people will just fall away. So how can civil disobedience be serious then and be like just or supported in a way that people can mm -hmm. reason with it and not just be freaked out by these extreme yeah. sort of protests? Well, that's, so again, I would say I would say I would push back against the idea that you do need to, you know, you need to choose to whom you are communicating, essentially, and you need to choose your audience. And so getting onto a Piers Morgan debate is just, OK, fine, you reach a lot of people, but no one who's listening is going to care. You're not there to convince people. Some people are going to be immobile. Right. And so you have to think about the. Um, the limits of that kind of communicative function. It's not, it's not totally to be dismissed, but I think the, the focus needs to be more on building a degree of solidarity and finding the chokeholds in the system where crises can be created. And I think you do that through, and I think this is historically the case as well, through um, labor action. I think you do it through um, strikes. Um, what would be a wonderful thing to see is a general strike, but I don't see that happening. Uh, and so I, I think this kind of focus on when breaking the law is justified is kind of missing the point. The, the point is, you know, how do you create these crises? How do you generate these crises? Sometimes you do that through breaking the law. Sometimes you don't need to break the law. Uh, sometimes you can throw yourself on the wheels and kind of, you know, um, show yourself to the police and, and be arrested. Sometimes you don't want to do that. You want to keep it covert and you want to evade um, the police. And so the this rather than think of anything as a kind of adherence to the rules of civil disobedience, because there's something about being civil, which is um, both a strategic of strategic value and also of moral value, I think is is kind of missing the point. The point is it's, is to create crises. And you do that through finding these various chokeholds in the system. And I think primarily the best way for ordinary working people to do that is, is through their workplaces, particularly kind of key industries. So manufacturing, uh, logistics, um, that, those kinds of you know, key industries, that will be the place to apply these kinds of chokeholds. How you generate that force is, is something I, um, you know, I, I, I cannot say. It's, it's an incredibly daunting task. But I think if you're serious about the task, um, that is one of the one of the key avenues is to think about the way in which labor as a movement can be linked up to to these wider social movements, because I don't see much of a conversation happening between them uh, at the moment. So looking historically, how has civil disobedience been a significant form of protest? And are there examples of how this has actually made change? Or do you think these recent actions will be examples of that in the future? Yeah. So, I, I mean, civil disobedience is probably the, the one that is most famous 
um, or most kind of uh, prominent within the collective imagination is the civil rights movement, um, the United States civil rights movement, right? So that was a situation where um, you could engage in this kind of controlled law breaking where the the, the public sphere was divided in such a way that moral appeals could be made. And in addition, the although the, the gains that were had were enormous, what you were essentially trying to do was turn a, a deeply illiberal regime into a more liberal one by enfranchising groups of people and introducing anti-discrimination laws and this kind of thing. So the, the, the context there was moving a, a deeply illiberal regime to a more liberal regime. And you could, you know, you've... Other examples would be, I think, the one that's often cited by um, XR and other kind of um, theorists of activism is kind of art poor as well in, um, in Serbia. But I think the civil rights movement is still the one that's um, kind of strongest in the imagination. But the, the, it's, it's important to, you know, to recognize the context there where it was um, bringing people in to enfranchise people, to, to, to make the, and, and, yeah, and a liberal regime more liberal. Whereas what you have when it comes to pushing against um, climate crisis, you know, we're all, all the people who are engaged in the civil disobedience are already citizens. They're not pushing for something like formal enfranchisement. They're pushing for something far more complex and a far deeper kind of structural change. And so um, it's important to kind of um, adapt the tactics um, to those, to that context now. What that means again is hard to is hard to know. It looks like something like certainly more international, um, internationally uh, kind of calibrated and coordinated forms of action would seem to be necessary because you're dealing with something that is happening at a global level. Whereas when it was um, fighting against the Jim Crow laws of the South, it was a more local uh, set of circumstances. So yeah, so how you coordinate across borders is something that becomes increasingly uh, important. And um, and in addition, how you, you know, if, if your actions are supposed to be disruptive and create crisis, how you're creating these crises across these borders, because you're not creating kind of local crisis for local government, you're trying to create them for these, you know, large corporations, incredibly kind of light-footed, fleet-footed um, institutions, um, as well as, you know, international organizations with, you know, very limited accountability by all accounts, um, in, you know, whether it be the IMF, the World Bank, um, or whatever, these are hard institutions to kind of pin down and create crises for. Um, so, yeah, so I, I think the other thing you, it might be worth kind of bearing in mind, if, if only as a kind of, I mean, it's, it's almost academic, I guess, but to think of anti, kind of anti-colonial movements and what needed to happen in those kinds of contexts, because there the situation was one of, you know, pure extractive capitalism, absolutely brutal forms of violence uh, where civil disobedience a lot of times just wasn't on the cards because it was met with, you know, ferocious violence. Um, and so we, we have a slightly different context there because, you know, if you throw soup at a, at a painting, you're not going to be shot. Um, but nevertheless, it seems like um, the powers that be have found mechanisms through which to control protest in such a way that they don't need to shoot these people because um, they can handle them in other ways. Um, so, yeah, so I would, say, I would say taking lessons from the histories of civil disobedience is difficult precisely because of the specific challenges that you know, the international nature and just the, the depth of the crisis and precisely what is at stake are so different from the ordinary, um, from the from the historical examples that we are familiar with when it comes to civil disobedience. But again, I think, again, to kind of stress what I said before, I think labor organizations 
um, left political parties have a role to play in this. Uh, and I think these kind of these activist movements should take seriously those kinds of those kinds of institutions. That was a Radio 191 FM podcast. You can find more of them at r1.co.nz forward slash podcast.